Well, welcome back to the One Voice podcast. We're thrilled to be here with you on your healing journey. And we have a really special guest today uh, joining us from San Francisco. Her name's Rachel Grant. She is an author and she's a sexual abuse recovery coach. And Rachel, welcome to our podcast. I'm really excited to kind of dive into your story. And if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and then also just how you got to this place of being a sexual abuse recovery coach. Thank you, Nicole, for having me, and really nice to be here with you all. Um, so my story really begins when I was five years old. My grandfather came to live with our family, and I was super excited about that at the time because I had an older brother and sister who didn't really pay me much attention. <laughs> so I thought, aha, I have a captive audience uh, <laughs> here in my, my grandfather. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and he really quickly became... Uh, a companion. You know, I would run home from school and go straight to his room and uh, we would play and hang out and talk. And and so that relationship really was very significant for me mm-hmm. at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. If we fast forward to when I was 10 years old, we were sitting outside one day on the front porch like we often did. And I was snuggled up next to him. He always wore this orange fuzzy sweater that I just loved for some reason. And so I loved to cuddle and I loved to be, you know, close. And we were sitting there and talking and watching the kids playing across the street in the park. And before I realized what was happening, my grandfather had reached around and started to touch my breast. And I remember thinking that he just didn't realize where his hand was, you know, like just an accident. And so I started to kind of wiggle and move. But in that moment, he gripped a hold of me tighter. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, oh, something is different today. Mm-hmm. Something is happening. And uh, I know, of course, looking back on it now uh, that I dissociated Mm-hmm. And just kind of spaced out for a while. And when I finally snapped to, I did break away from my grandfather. And I remember running inside to my parents' room and crying and scared and upset and all of those things that we feel. And, you know, still to this day, Nicole, it, it surprises me how quickly we begin trying to make sense of what is happening to us. And yeah. when we're children, and we don't have any point of reference, we, of course, immediately go to things like, I've done something bad. What did I do to cause this, right? right? Yeah. Um, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And so just like this immediately consumed by all of those fears and feelings and thoughts. And the abuse continued for, for quite some time and it got worse. One day my mom was walking by there was a window right there by the porch swing. For whatever reason, it often happened out on the porch. And uh, she saw what my grandfather was doing. This was her father, Uh. in fact, too. Mm -hmm. And my mother came tearing out onto the porch and was like, Rachel, get inside. Like in her best, like you're in trouble voice. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, (laughs) (laughs) and of course, as a child in that moment, that's exactly how I took it. Like, uh oh, like she's yelling at me. I I am in in trouble. trouble. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, of course, looking back on it now, I know that she was scared and she just wanted to get me away of and course, figure out yeah. what was going on. And okay. and so my my grandfather was removed from the house immediately. Um, I'm very thankful for that. Of course, having worked with survivors for going on 12 years now, I know that that's 
often not the case. Right. Um, you get that kind of validation and support. Mm-hmm. And even though my parents were very understanding and they wanted me to go to counseling, they even managed to get me into a counselor's office at least once. But I was like, uh-uh, are you crazy? Yeah. I'm not talking about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is no way. Um, so I just tried to shut it all down. And, and that's pretty much what I did from that age, you know, 10, 11 until 18. I just tried to put my head in the sand, pretend everything was okay. Nothing to see here, everybody. Let's just move on. Yeah. Uh, but then at 18, I, I started a relationship that ultimately turned out to be very abusive. And I was in that relationship for 10 years. And when we divorced, I was in my new apartment. I had very little. My life had kind of just been stripped down. I don't know if you all have ever had an experience like that. Where yeah. It's like, okay, we're at the bottom of the barrel here. Right. And it was in that moment that even though I had been kind of doing some counseling and I had finally started to think about the impact of the abuse and try to figure some of these things out, some things had been shifting, but not really. And I just remember feeling in that moment that if I do not do something like right now to get my shit together, I am going to spend the rest of my life miserable. Yeah. Totally. Been there, done that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so everything in me just became obsessed with trying to answer this question of how do I actually heal from sexual abuse. Mm. And so that's what really launched me into this journey more deeply. I started studying everything I could, reading everything I could. I did my master's in counseling psychology. I studied neuroscience Mm -hmm. and ultimately, you know, began putting together these pieces um, and strategies that I was really just trying to get myself together, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so many, I think, psych students have that same kind of silent hidden reason, right? Right. It's so true. It's so true. And so just bit by bit, I was drawing on my background in education. In a former life, I was a teacher an educator. And so I think very much in like terms of curriculum and learning and strategy and scaffolding. And so I just bit by bit tried this and then I tried that and then I tried this. And as I started to feel more confident that the strategies that I was developing were actually helping me to heal Mm -hmm. and were actually helping to make sure that I would not spend the rest of my life in recovery, Uh, then with the nudging of some friends and family, I decided to see if it would work for other people. Yeah. And that was, you know, in 2007. And now we are here, you know, 12 years later. And and this is the work I do every day with men and women all over the country, all over the world, Mm -hmm. really uh, taking them through the Beyond Surviving program. That's really cool. And, you know, how much more meaningful it is when it's coming out of a personal place that you've actually found healing yourself and now you want to offer that to others and help them sort of behind you, you know, on this journey. Mm. That's really, really great and admirable. And and I'm so grateful that you've, you know, gotten to that point in your life. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Because there were certainly days where I did not even imagine it was going to be possible, right? Those really dark days. Definitely. Um, Absolutely. And so do you think with the model that you've created and your program and things, what are some of the biggest helpful skills that you really focus on with survivors? I know for many of us, the one thing that I really focus on is helping people understand that it wasn't their fault. They didn't deserve it. There's nothing they could have asked for. But when I when I talk to you, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing from you. And mostly I want our listeners to hear some of the skills that you have found helpful, especially when it comes to maybe 
like breaking unhealthy thought patterns or, you know, Mm -hmm. silencing voices in your head or just relating to others? Do you ever work with people who struggle with like OCD or control issues? Like are those these are some very specified parts of our healing that we don't talk about a lot. And I was hoping maybe you could suggest some some skill training or how you've been able to help others overcome those types of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for that question, because it really, to my mind, is at the root of our healing, the impact that trauma has on our our, our brain and on our nervous system mm-hmm. is really where the work is to be done. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, one thing that I, I ultimately have learned in this journey is that the abuse sucked. It was a terrible experience. But the actual trauma in my life, what made my life hard was not the experience, but everything I came to think and believe about myself, about others, Mm -hmm. about life, about relationships, about sex, about about everything Mm -hmm. as a result of that experience and the impact that it had on my brain and on my nervous system. Mm -hmm. So Maybe it is to give folks kind of uh, some foundation. We'll do a little um, neuroscience 101, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and if I start to go kind of in a direction that you're not kind of thinking, just, yeah, stop me and we'll, we can redirect. But yeah. when we are experiencing trauma, on a neurological level, the brain is trying to help us survive. It's, it's like, I think it's helpful to think of um, abuse as an injury to the brain and the nervous system. And so it's just like any injury. Like if you fall and you break your leg, right? Um, the system, your body has a very set, set protocol that it, it follows in right. order to help you manage that. Mm-hmm. And the brain and the nervous system is the same when we're experiencing trauma. And so the way that the brain is set up, we have all these neurons that are running around, billions and billions and billions of them. And as experiences are happening, they are firing off and connecting with each other. And these neuronal pathways are being created. And contained within these neuronal pathways is data. And so that's the data in the, from the experience. So it might be, you know, the color of the wall, the sounds that were around you, a smell, a particular sensation or response that you had, a particular feeling that you had. And all of this becomes encoded into the brain and the nervous system. And so because of the nature of human trauma, we don't often have an immediate opportunity to release that stress and that trauma, yeah, the way that animals do, for example. Um, if an animal gets frightened, they just run, they shake real quick and get it out of their system, and then they're back to, you know, eating grass or whatever they do. <laughs> Why can't we just do that? I would shake and eat grass. Like, let me live. So <laughs> it would be so good. It would be so Too good. Too boring. Right. So much <laughs> but, easier. That's true. I know, right? But here's the thing, because we have this amazing part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which lets us do all sorts of things like invent programs and create and deeply empathize with other people and think profoundly, it also is the trap that we get the part of our brain that causes us to analyze, to process and create meaning out of experiences. And so that part of our brain is where we get stuck in the trauma in in the sense that we're constantly looking at trying to explain why, why did this happen to me? And as children, 
as I was kind of saying in my story, the, the reasons that we come up with are sometimes magical. Sometimes they're very egocentric because children are egocentric and that's a healthy thing for them. It just backfires when there's trauma. And so these belief systems become encoded and then throughout our lifetime, we begin to reinforce them. So for example, when I ran to my parents' bedroom, I was crying, I was upset. And I remember thinking, why isn't anyone checking on me? And in that moment when nobody came to care for me and nurture me and help me in that moment, this little belief that turned out to not be so little in the end of the day, I've got to handle it on my own. It's like it was born yeah. in that moment. And then throughout my life, that belief continued to impact and influence the choices that I made, how I showed up in my life. I would certainly go out into my life and prove that I was all on my own, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I was very good at gathering evidence to make sure that that was the case. And so one of the things that we work on very specifically in the Beyond Surviving program is understanding these, we call them stories. Yeah. These stories that get created and developed as a result of trauma, I sometimes describe it like you have this bookshelf and all of your bestsellers are there on your bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, I like that, yeah. <laughs> Whenever you're having an experience in the present day, the brain is kind of lazy at the end of the day. And so it's just going to kind of go over and stand in front of the bookshelf and say, all right, which of these bestsellers best explains what's happening in my life right now? Mm. And so you grab that belief and then you have all the same associations and maybe emotions and feelings and responses. And so our job is to, first of all, understand the stories and beliefs that have been created as a result of the trauma. And so we have exercises and strategies for doing that. A very simple way to do that is to just ask yourself the question, as a result of this experience, what do I now believe or what do I now think about myself? Mm -hmm. And once you have that, we can then challenge those stories. It's like creating a new bookshelf. And so we're going to start to create new beliefs and transition and change the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about experiences. And so what happens is the new bookshelf is there. You're creating some new stories and beliefs. And for a while, the brain is confused. I don't know where to pull from. Is it this shelf or is it this shelf? Yeah, really. Right. But eventually, because the brain is very pliable, it's very plastic, which means it can change no matter how old you are, no matter how much trauma you've had. Mm, that's good. Then, yeah. Yeah. Then eventually what happens is these old books, I sometimes say they get donated, but people usually say, I don't want to donate them. I just want to burn them. Can we have like a book Ooh, party? Yes. <laughs> big old bonfire lineup. Yes. That's funny. <laughs> major in me always cringes like ah because Same. no matter what stories but um yeah burn yeah. them get rid of them my mm -hmm. dream right now off topic is i yeah. want a whole wall of bookshelves and then i want it completely filled with books and then to order them in the in the order of a rainbow that's like <laughs> right. my dream right now that's what i want to do in my house I so i would that. never burn a book no, I, you it would, would just that. it would have a place because it has a color. <laughs> yeah. Mm, so yes, interesting. That's beautiful. Yeah. Anyway. So the so the big idea there is essentially that we start to change the way that the brain processes information and we become more adept and more skilled at recognizing when we might be dropping into an old pattern or an old story and having tools and skills that help us to do that. So 
in short order, the entire Beyond Surviving program is about giving people a variety of tools to Mm -hmm. do this. We always start with a boot camp for the brain in the program because that piece of understanding the injury of trauma, what's happening on a neurological level, how to begin interrupting those thought processes and patterns uh, is so foundational, along with nervous system regulation. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of survivors end up re-traumatized in therapy Mm -hmm. uh, because... They don't have those foundations, and then the therapist asks them to start going into telling their story or talking about the things that are really hard or hurtful or painful, Mm -hmm. and that ends up actually being re-traumatizing because they don't have the nervous system regulation in order to be able to cope. And that's part of the reason why I developed a curriculum, Mm -hmm. because I I really Mm -hmm. wanted to pay very close attention to, is there an order in which we need to do things okay. in order to bring about the best possible results. It's kind of like baking a cake. I mean, not to minimize or reduce what this work is like, because I get it, it's tough. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like if you put the egg in before the flour, that I don't actually bake, so I have no idea what order you have. <laughs> you don't know the order, it's okay. <laughs> we'll help you. <laughs> Thank you. But, but I do know you've got to do it in a particular order or your cake yes. is crap. Right? <laughs> okay. So I thought, what if it's the same thing with this injury? Because going back to the analogy of a broken leg, if you go, if you break your leg and you go to the hospital, the doctor doesn't sit there and go, hmm, let me think about how I want to fix your leg, right? The doctor goes, okay, for this type of break, we do this, 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 and this, Mm -hmm. and then the leg heals. And So I thought, why would it not be something similar for an injury to the brain and the nervous system if we think about it and frame it that way? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm kind of off into all sorts of lands here, but, but ultimately to give people some very specific strategies. So you can even just from today's conversation, start doing some of this retraining the brain. One of my favorite tools that I teach my clients during the boot camp for the brain is called positive opposites. So we all have this, you know, this kind of nasty voice in our head, you know, that likes to say all sorts of things to us. You're not good enough. There you go. It's so loud. It's so loud. Like Nicole can look at me when she knows that voice is taking over and it's like, (laughs) oh, shut up. (laughs) Right. Thanks, Mary. I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. And so. But you need people to look at you like that so that you remember that is not real. It's not reality. Yeah. That's right. And that's, that's, I'm so glad you said that in that way, because here's the thing. When we are in our head and we're hearing those thoughts, it feels like us and it feels like a truth, like it's yeah, really real. It does. And so we want to start kind of breaking that up and challenging that. And so the positive opposite strategy is all about using language and using focus to interrupt that process. I, th- I talk about it like it's the autopilot of the brain. Mm-hmm. Over time, the brain just gets trained to go in a particular direction. Right. Again, it goes straight to that bookshelf, grabs what's there, doesn't think about it, doesn't analyze it, mm-hmm. just that's what's so. And we need to begin challenging that and, and thinking, is this really true? Does that does right. that really apply to this situation? Right. So, for example, if you're, you know, out in your life and you're experiencing something and you have this thought, you know, nobody loves me. Mm-hmm. Well, a positive opposite of that would be some people love me. Right. 
Yeah. No longer making blanket statements, sweeping statements about something because if it's not completely true, it, it can't be an always statement. That's right. That's right. Something like I'm ugly, positive opposite. I'm beautiful. Mm -hmm. And when people first start this exercise, the brain kind of goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> this yeah, is not really. compute. Yeah. It's almost like a little bit of pushback, yeah. right? Yeah, like you can't absorb it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why when I'm working with my clients, I make a very clear distinction between believing something and using a tool to change the brain. Mm-hmm. It's like doing a sit up or doing exercise for your brain. Mm-hmm. Like if I do 50 sit ups, whether I believe they're effective or not, my body is going to feel it. Okay. Yeah. So my believing in it doesn't change the effectiveness of the sit ups. And in fact, using positive opposites and being in the space of I need to believe this can actually be re-traumatizing. And so that's why we make that distinction in the beyond surviving world of we're actually just using language to interrupt the autopilot response. Mm, yeah. Because so noticing thought, it is probably the first step, it. you know, that's noticing right. I, I think that I am always going to fail. I'm always messing up. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm never doing things good enough. If you can first recognize that that's a problem. Now, what's your next step to interrupt it? Yeah, that's right. And positive opposites are just a great way to do that because otherwise that one negative thought goes to the next negative thought to the next negative thought. Before you know it, you're on mm-hmm. your couch watching mm-hmm. Netflix for five days, right? right? It's just <laughs> totally, <laughs> it's yeah. that's reality for yeah. many people. And yeah. So is it so is, and I know the pain of that, and mm. I know the pain of being in your thoughts and being consumed by them, and feeling like all of it is so very true. There's no escape. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm. And so, at the end of the day, like the work that I get to do is is really two parts. It's one part helping people understand their their trauma, the impact of that trauma, and how to recover and complete the path. The other part of my work is about teaching survivors life skills. Mm -hmm. That's good. That was going to be my next question was, Mm -hmm. okay, so if we're dealing with these thought patterns and retraining them, can that also be done with maybe the unhealthy coping that we're doing? Yeah, exactly. So you were mentioning things like OCD, right? Control, right. All those things for sure. Yeah. There are all sorts of these coping behaviors that we come about. Controlling our environment, which ultimately is a, a big piece of OCD, um, is a really big one for survivors because mm-hmm. most children who are in an envi- abusive environment, they don't have any choice. They don't have any control. Mm-hmm. And so we find little ways to feel that control. Like I remember in my room, I would have my little, (laughs) oh man, this is taking me back. Okay. So, you know, back in the day, the happy meals, right. Um, And so the little toys that you would get, (laughs) I was an avid collector. (laughs) And so I had like three shelves in my room that had all these little figures on them. But Mm -hmm. boy, if one of those figures got nudged just the wrong way, Oh, honey. No, it was, I had to get it right. Yeah. Oh, girl. So you're speaking to Mary. Uh, uh-huh. But my whole room was like that. If any yeah. little thing yeah. had been nudged, it was yeah. like laser beam focus, like have right. to move that back. And yeah, that's how I grew up my whole childhood. And it all. Exactly. So it creates too. this sense of safety. It creates this sense of like, I have some say about something. 
damn it, that Garfield figurine is going to be just <laughs> right, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then, and, and when we're children and when we're trying to cope and survive the trauma, man, we are so smart. What a gift. How wise we are to do that. The problem is that as we become adults and as we are now trying to live empowered in an empowered way, these coping strategies become suffocating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They become detrimental in many ways. Yes, they do. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've seen all over and over again with my clients who, who come in saying, I have OCD, I have all these, you know, control issues and I can't let things go. It has to be just so, is that by the end of the program, that has come into balance. It's not like they all of a sudden just don't care about their environment at mm -hmm. all, mm -hmm. right? Like I still care about my environment, but I don't have panic attacks. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. yeah. It's, off, it's right? not owning you. It's something that yeah. you're using as a skill at that point. That's it, right. It's not owning you anymore. That's really good. And and the reason why that shift can happen is because our sense of safety comes into balance. Like we, we come into our adulthood, we come into self-agency, we come into the sense of I do have choice, mm -hmm. I am empowered, mm -hmm. and and nervous system regulation. So when you have that alignment, when you're at what we call kind of baseline, more often than not, just kind of a, a regulated system, mm -hmm. then all of that anxiety and panic and fear is not just there in your face on a constant day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I was even reading in a book recently because I struggle with intense anxiety. I've had OCD for years and um, even working through counseling and, you know, trying to do my own, you know, work with it. But it said in the book, sometimes anxiety is just like you have this constant buzz of anxiety just running through you on the day to day 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly just looking for something to attach itself to. Even when you don't necessarily mm -hmm. feel anxious about something in particular, it's just this constant kind of hum that's going on in yeah. your head and in your heart. Almost like yeah, then it finally finds something to attach itself to. Yeah. It's just like on a search that's and then right. finally it does. And then that's where the downward spiral begins. Yeah. Bingo. I found my home. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And all of that is tied to what's happening to the, um, to our, in our system on a neurological level, the amygdala is at the root of all of what you were just talking about there. So when we are growing up in a healthy environment, we will have an act, something will activate us. And then there will be something that counters that activation if we're in a healthy environment. So the baby starts to cry. The amygdala starts to flood the system and say, hey, go on high alert. There's danger here. You might not get fed. You might not get clothed. You might not get nurturing. And then... The, the, it, that's creating the stress response system. And then a mother or a father or a caregiver comes and picks up the baby and feeds the baby, nurtures the baby. And so then the amygdala goes, oh, okay, no worries. I can chill out. But what's happening in, for a child who's growing up in an abusive situation is the amygdala gets activated. There's some trigger or trauma. And then there's no soothing. And so it might regulate down a little bit, but not come to a complete resolution. And so the amygdala kind of, I describe it for my clients as your amygdala kind of gets stuck in the on position. Mm. 
So that's why you're walking through the world constantly on guard and nervous and looking out for things and feeling endangered and all of that anxiety. Even I can't, I don't know why I'm feeling anxious. Well, it's not because there's an external, it's because there's an internal um, disruption that's happening. And so as we learn to regulate the nervous system and teach the amygdala to come back into healthy regulation, yes, respond here, now nurture and soothe. Oh, something just happened here, activated. That's okay. I can nurture and soothe myself back Mm -hmm. to baseline. Mm -hmm. Then that process of overactivation, hypervigilance falls away. Mm. So in a practical situation, what would that look like as an adult survivor of sexual abuse? You know, feeling like you have to take care of everybody and take care of yourself. You know, everything's (laughs) triggered and activated and now you self-soothe, but it becomes so overwhelming that you're constantly soothing yourself. What does it look like to retrain your brain in that situation? Yeah, so it's a it's a process of beginning to notice when you're activated and having lots of different strategies that you can use because in some instance like positive opposite will do it that's a, a regulating strategy yeah so um there are other tools that i teach um that do similar things but we can also do things like i'm going to take a bath right now i'm going to go for a walk mm-hmm. i'm going to cuddle with my favorite little fuzzy creature thing anyway <laughs> You know, and so having, I'm going to dance, I'm going to sing a song, uh, I'm going to call someone and talk about what's going on. I'm going to ask someone for a hug. So having this very like full toolkit yeah. allows us in any given moment to recognize that we, for, it is the awareness piece, right? Recognize that we're in a state of dysregulation. Mm-hmm. I think a key piece here, Nicole and Mary, is recognizing we have choice in this moment. We can escalate. Or we can regulate yeah. and we escalate by giving in right to the thought mm-hmm. and perpetuating it, deepening it, mm-hmm. expanding upon it. We regulate by using a tool from our toolkit. And so, uh, you know, sometimes people are like, man, this is going to take me, you know, like the rest of my life to figure <laughs> out how to do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so what's really amazing and beautiful is I, I think part of the reason why um, pe- people are surprised by the, by the Beyond Surviving program. I hear from my clients over and over again. I spent 20 years in therapy and what we did in eight months has changed my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, why would that be the case? What's happening? What am I doing differently? I mean, I've really mm-hmm. actually asked this question, like, what is it? What's yeah. distinct or different? Well, I was going to ask you, what is the difference for you, coaching versus therapy? And why do you feel like it's so much more effective? I think the main reason why this program is more effective than therapy is because there's one key difference. When we are looking at the past trauma, we were only doing so in as far as it helps us understand what is happening in the present day. And then very quickly, we're asking the question, what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. Therapy is great. Therapy is an important stage and tool for survivors to use in their healing process. To my mind, uh, survivors, when people move from the victim stage where you're kind of in that denial place and I don't want to deal with this and everything's fine, like where I was from, you know, 11 to 18. Yeah. um, When we... When we finally are ready to acknowledge the experience and start talking about it, that's the bridge into survivorship. 
And therapy is a great place to land when we're in that stage because we can sit on the couch and we can say what we need to say. We can get it out. We can talk. We can be heard. Yeah. And um, and there's there isn't much there isn't anything we, more we need to do really than that. The trouble is a lot of therapists are not actually specifically trained to deal with sexual trauma and abuse. I was so surprised when I did my master's program that we had one class on abuse. It was a Mm. Saturday class and it covered all kinds of abuse, elderly abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, Mm. child sexual abuse. Right. Mm. And so I think a lot of therapists are just not equipped. Yeah. So it's important when working with therapists that you really ask them, like, what have you done beyond Mm -hmm. your degree work to become trauma informed? Because the trap is therapy is is a space to tell your stories. And that is healing to a point. Mm -hmm. But actually, at a certain point, it becomes re-traumatizing on a neurological level, because whatever we are thinking, we are reinforcing. So if I go into my therapist's office and I talk about how shitty my day was, how nobody loves me, how I can't get any help, how I feel sad every single day, in the beginning, that's healing because it's like, God, I can finally say all this stuff that I haven't been able to tell yeah. anyone and yeah, that definitely. I've been scared mm-hmm. to say. And, yeah, oh, and to have a safe space a to do so because in your real life, exactly. no one's listening to yeah. you do that, right? That's right. But at year 20... Mm-hmm. When you're sitting on the therapist's couch yeah. <laughs> and that's what's going on mm-hmm. and there, there aren't any interventions being applied, um, you know, oh, man. So that actually becomes a reinforcement of the negative beliefs mm-hmm. and you become more entrenched in the trauma rather than free yeah. from the trauma. Yeah. And so when people join the Beyond Surviving program, they're really at that place in their journey where they're like, okay, enough is enough. I've talked about this. Mm-hmm. I know all of the lingo, right? I am very trauma smart, right. yeah. but I just do not feel like my life is changing in the way that I really want it to change. Yeah. And I think so, that's really good. A lot of times survivors will come to me and feel like, well, I don't know that my counselor's a good fit anymore. And I think my common response is, well, do you feel like you're walking away with more tools in your tool belt or you've gotten as much as you can from that person and now it's time to move on. And that's usually what it is. They don't feel yeah. like they're getting any more tools. They've gotten as much as they could or they were just, they finally had a safe place to tell their story, but there's no more, nothing else for their current daily life. How do I deal with all these things? Yeah. They're not getting that. So that's when they move on to somebody else, hopefully have the courage to look for a new therapist. But sounds like the coaching yeah. is where you found that to be the key. Yeah, that was that for me when I was doing my master's, I thought, okay, am I going to go the therapy route or am I going to go the coaching route? Mm-hmm. And I landed very, very solidly on the coaching side of things yeah. because my intention was to really walk alongside people. But also, quite honestly, I knew that there needed to be teaching happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'll never forget, I was in therapy one day and I was like, man, I don't know, I'm, just, I'm so struggling with this. I cannot figure out why I keep, you know, fighting, you know, with my, my then husband. We keep having the same fight, we keep going around the same mountain. Every time he does this, I get triggered and I lose my shit. Mm-hmm. And the therapist really just looked at me and did the classic, and how do you feel uh, about that? <laughs> uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah. <laughs> And I literally in that moment was like, why am I paying you any money? You do not 
have any answers for me. Yeah. You, and, and so there's this, you know, there's this, there's this thing in the world of self-help and, and recovery and healing and even coaching that people have the answers within. No, people do not have all the answers within. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. have the strength and the fortitude to apply the things that they learn. That's within. That's interior. But sometimes we need people to tell us what to do. People have walked before us. And so that's, that's right. why that's in, the, right. in the beyond. Yeah. And I don't shy away from that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't at all. I say in this program, you're going to have time to reflect. Mm-hmm. It is going to be. You know, um, we are going to um, personalize this as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And there's a structure, there's mm-hmm. a curriculum, mm-hmm. there's a step-by-step process, and you are going to follow that step-by-step process. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be moments in our sessions where I'm going to be teaching you and I'm going to be explaining things to you. Now, you don't have to agree with me and you might not see it my way and that's 100% okay or you might take something that i teach and adapt it a little bit or switch it up or change something in that to make it fit for you but ultimately that's the life skills piece that i was talking about earlier like people don't know how to trust that's not something we just know within ourselves no we have to it's a, it's a skill communication is a skill mm-hmm. setting boundaries is a skill so i can have you sit in meditation all day long about setting boundaries, but if I don't teach you any tools for that, you're just going to have a nice meditation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Just a little just quiet time. Out. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. A little nap, a little time out, but you're still going to go out into your life and fail to set boundaries and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's the, this dual approach between self-reflection and teaching that happens in the Beyond Surviving program and the structure that we follow. And ultimately, you know, people sometimes describe me as compassionately challenging. I think that's the other reason why what the work that I do is a little different is because I call people on their shit. I mean, just quite honestly, like, okay, are we going to go around this same mountain again? Do you want to do that again today? Mm. Right. Or do you want to use one of the tools in your toolkit Mm -hmm. today? No, I think that's really good. And I'm glad you're even you have that self-awareness. I think that there are survivors that need a soft place to land because they're at the first stages. But there's many yeah. of us who are have gotten through that and we're like, I know I want somebody to challenge me. I don't want to waste my money sitting mm-hmm. on this soft, fluffy couch mm-hmm. and being asked how I feel. I need someone yeah. to really challenge me with my stuff and I'm coming in ready to work. And that's where you're the person that they would want to talk to. That's right. And so part of my job when I'm meeting with people and talking with people is assessing that. Mm. Are you ready for that? And if yeah. not, it's okay. I have other places where you can land. Mm-hmm. Until you're ready for that. I do a monthly um, donation-based support group where people who can pop in who are in those earlier stages of recovery and just need safe space to talk about, to get reflection, to get a little bit of guidance and support, mm-hmm. um, you know, can land. Um, or, I, or I refer them out, right? Let's, why don't you go do therapy for a while? Yeah. Here are some people who I recommend. Or, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you work through this guidebook that has a little bit more of those foundation pieces, not mine, some other ones. Mm-hmm. And then when you're ready, you know, come back to me and, you know, I'll keep tracking you until then. That's great. That's great because you're seeing the value in both sides and not saying my way is the only way. So that, that's very right. positive and, and very inclusive. So you've been coaching for how many years now? 12. That's amazing. In January will be 12 years. Wow. Great. And so you've done this for 12 years and I think like me, you know, once you've done it, things like this over a decade, you can look back and you you can see what the most 
uh, influential things that you've done or along the healing journey for, you know, as you look at all the clients that you've had, what have been the most helpful tools or maybe the common problems mm-hmm. that you've helped solve over the course of that time? If you look back, are there are there a few that really rise to the top? Yeah, you know, I think in the the Beyond Surviving program, I've tried to make it as comprehensive as possible. So we start out with nervous system regulation, retraining the brain. Then we look at resolving and healing shame. We move into looking at how we can build better connections, get out of isolation. From there, we're looking at emotional health. So dealing with anger, anxiety, and fear and emotional balance and wellness in general. We're going to look at confidence. We look at relationship skills like trust, sexuality, intimacy, vulnerability, communication, Mm -hmm. forgiveness, how to have a conversation, how to tell your story. So I've really tried to pack as much as I can into this. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you're naming it all, sister. And so what I'll say is there are a couple of things that I think I have a take on them that is unique and really has an impact on my clients. And so I'll speak to it in that kind of way. I think the way that I tackle shame um, is is the way that I've figured out how to do that to get people from the place of it's my fault. I caused this. There's something wrong with me that made this happen. All of those stories, I wanted it to happen. All of that to no way. None of this is my fault. This doesn't belong to me at all. Yeah. That we, we work on that over the course of three sessions, actually. <laughs> so from like kind of cracking the door open to that, to digging in more deeply, to shifting mindsets, to using tools to release shame. And to my mind, the work that I see, the healing work that I see happening for my clients in that arena just brings a huge smile to my face because first of all, to hear them, you know, at the start of the program talking about how they're so ashamed of themselves and this is my fault and all of this has been caused by me to at the end of the program going, none of this belongs to me. It's not mine. Right. I didn't cause this. And that alone is just, that's a win in my book, right? Definitely. Just to have that mindset shift, but the trickle down effects of that Um, what I've come to understand about shame. People will often say to me, why do I always put everybody else first? And I constantly feel like I'm apologizing apologizing all the time. And I never know what I need. Oh my. Rachel. You nailed it. (laughs) I just said this to my counselor the other day. I was like, help me. Yep. Yep. And it's true. I mean, I'm like, Mary, why are you apologizing about that? There's nothing. Because I exist. Like sometimes you feel like you're apologizing because you exist. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh, exactly. I thank the good Lord you exist every day. All right. Yeah. But I just well, want her to. So tell her. <laughs> Fix me, Rachel. I love Fix that you me. exist. So the underlying core of all of that is shame. Mm. And so a lot of times what I've heard from my the, my clients is they work on a di- they're trying to work on a different level. Like I'm going to try to identify my needs or I'm going to try to set boundaries. But the underlying core feeling of shame has not been resolved. Mm. And so those behaviors can't change. Mm -hmm. And once I understood that correlation between shame, which, by the way, in the beyond surviving world, we define as taking responsibility for something that doesn't belong to you. As soon as we do that. We, ha- we are the next thing that's going to be generated is shame because we're going to have to explain why we are bad or why it's our responsibility. I'll never forget one time I was um, at a party 
and I was waiting online for the bathroom. The girl ahead of me went in. She came out. She looked me straight in the eye, said, I'm sorry. And I said to her, what did you do in Why there? Why are you apologizing? <laughs> did you break say. the bathroom? What did you do in there? <laughs> I know. I was like, what? Did you break? And I just knew. And I was like, Come, let's have a conversation. And yes, she was a survivor of abuse. Mm. And so she was taking care of her basic needs. But because of this feeling of being bad, not being deserving, being wrong all the time, just even the act of her going to the bathroom and having somebody have to wait for her to go. Wow. Made her feel bad. Yeah. That she caused someone some to wait. Yeah. 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 Impatience. And so, exactly. And so, you know, when we start to resolve that shame, then we start to better recognize what belongs to us and what doesn't belong to us. So when someone bumps into us, rather than apologizing, we go, that doesn't belong to me. You bumped into me. You better <laughs> apologize to me. Right. Yeah. Um, when somebody's upset and angry, Rather than, ooh, I'm responsible for your feelings. Mm -hmm. I caused that. We go, oh, that doesn't belong to me. That's not in my bucket. That's your bucket. How you're responding and your feelings belong to you. Yeah, it's and almost so like get out of that. What we were talking about with the anxiety earlier, and as I mentioned that the quote from the book, because I live that out every single day. It's almost like this subconscious thing that I don't even realize is happening, but I am mm-hmm. quietly looking for an opportunity to apologize. Mm-hmm. When half the time I know mm-hmm. that I'm not in the wrong, but it's just it flies out of my mouth, and I can't even catch it in time because it's already out there. I know. It's just and this second nature reaction so, to it, it life. And, and I think I'll go ahead and say, I think women are also a little more like sure. regardless of yeah. abuse or not abuse. I think women are a little more programmed. Have you all ever seen the, um, the Amy Schumer video? Um, the Probably. I'm sorry, Amy Schumer. <laughs> She's sitting on a panel. There's a, a guy, the guy's leading the panel. And then there are three women sitting there. It's, you know, it's all pretend. Yeah. And um, she said, he says, can I get you all anything to drink? And one of the women says, oh, you know, can I have, um, you know, some coffee? I'm going to make it up. I can't remember all the specifics. Yeah. Can I have some coffee? And then the assistant comes in with like a Coke and mm-hmm. she goes, oh, I, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I thought I, I could have some coffee. Oh, <laughs> right? uh, Like, let me like, apologize for your mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then it just kind of, and then like the guy keeps saying her name wrong, mm-hmm. calling her the wrong name. And she keeps up. I'm sorry. My name is, I'm sorry. My name is. Uh, and then, Ugh. like, they escalate it, right? And one of the girls, like, catches on fire. Like, the guy drops. <laughs> She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know? Yeah. No, women are addicted to apologizing. I read an article about that years ago. Women, whether, yeah. like you said, survivor or not, women are addicted hmm. to apologizing. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And so it's this it's this way of making ourselves small and not taking up space. Uh, mm-hmm. The patriarchy. And again. Yeah. And then if you add like on that trauma, on fire, gosh, right? Sorry. Okay. Continue. Yeah, Rachel, yeah. go hurry. <laughs> She'll keep talking. I love you guys. It's so fun. 
I mean, that's it. So we have these we have these social and institutional messages that we get. Mm -hmm. And then we add trauma on top of that. (laughs) Multiply it. And we feel like the smallest of the small of the small and not deserving and not able to take up space and, and all of that. And so taking back our voice and taking back, you know, really just taking up space. Mm. I think is a big piece of what healing from abuse is all about. Mm. I think it's about stripping away all of the bullshit that Mm. we've come to believe as Mm. a result of trauma. So we can see ourselves as our magnificent, beautiful, wonderful, lovable, amazing, awesome selves that we are. And that's not something we have to go create. It's there. It's just been covered up. That's really yeah. good. It's it's really about accepting the fact that, that we are a creature. We've been created to take mm-hmm. up space on this earth for mm-hmm. a purpose. And we don't yeah. have to apologize for that space we're taking up. And we also don't have to be responsible for anyone else's space. Yeah, beautifully said. It's mm, really good. And so maybe in finally understanding that and in coming into knowing our best self, you know, who we are, who we've been created to be, even outside of the trauma that we can begin to understand. We don't have to apologize for anything, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, and and letting go of of some of those negative self-talks about not being able to be what everybody else expected us to be, but in fact, just Mm -hmm. being who we want to be. Our best yeah, self. cheers to that, right? <laughs> and that to me is ultimately what Beyond Surviving is all about, that there's something more than surviving this life. Mm. There's something beyond it, mm. that life isn't about recovery, that there is a stage in our life that is about recovery mm-hmm. and healing from the past. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, we continue to grow as human beings. We learn, you know, we expand ourselves, but we're not constantly, you know, in the past, working it out, figuring it out, reflecting on it, thinking about it. And, uh, and then that way, yes, we get to live the life that we really want to live and be the people that we really want to be. So good. Well, Rachel, I really enjoyed this. How would people get in touch with you to hear more and maybe even to personalize this for themselves if they're even looking for coaching? For sure. So go to my website, rachelgrantcoaching.com. I really encourage people to go to the resource section, check out the blog, check out the podcast, check out the free trainings. Lots of tools you've got available to survivors. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been really meaningful and I've definitely learned a lot from you just in the time that we've had together now. So hopefully we'll be able to continue some conversations in the future. And thank you so much, Rachel. Yes, thank you. Mary, Nicole, thank you all so much. It's such a joy to be here with you all today. Yeah, well, we wish we were in San Francisco right now, but we're not. So (laughs) maybe one day. (laughs) One day, come visit. Yes. Thank you, Rachel. Have a good week. You too, be well.